A good Tuesday morning to you and uh, welcome to March. Fabulous. We speculated out loud a couple of days ago. I wonder if that'll be it for the snowfall. I wonder if we're in the clear and then boom, whammo. Sorry about that. However, March, 16 days away from St. Patrick's Day, and then the ball's rolling into spring. This is great. We've got a good uh, show in store for you. You may have noticed, or you may not have, over the weekend, a flight arrived in Montreal, marking the arrival of the 25th thousandth, or would it be the 25,000th, uh, grammatical uh, proficionados, Please chime in to 630-630. Let me know. 25,000 Syrian refugees have now arrived in Canada. The Liberal government making good on its commitment, albeit a couple of months late. But how are these refugees adjusting? Specifically, how are they securing employment to kickstart this new life in Canada? In just a second, we'll talk to Dr. Riza Hasmat, the political scientist at the University of Alberta, right here in Edmonton. We're going to get into the mailbag this morning in the 10 o'clock hour. You may have heard me talking to Bruce Bowie. I'm just the tiniest little bit perturbed uh, by both the government of Quebec and Uber. They have nothing in common with each other except, well, yeah, maybe they do. We'll explore that a little bit in the 10 o'clock hour of course, at 10.20, we're going to qualify somebody for that GNR concert in Las Vegas, their very first concert reuniting. We'll try to check in with Scott Johnson, who's down at City Hall. You know, City Council is going to vote today on that so-called body rub bylaw. We'll get into that. And then no relation, or is it, in the 11 o'clock hour, Dr. Corey Harushka, a registered psychologist, a sex therapist. We're going to talk about porn addiction. Is it a real thing? Can you actually be addicted to pornography? If so, or if you're convinced you're not, what would be the signs and why could it be such a concern? We'll get into that in the 11 o'clock hour. We've got an ask out as well for Alberta's Transportation Minister, Brian Mason. We'll see if he can make himself available. But let's get going with our first guest. As mentioned, 25,000 Syrian refugees now calling Canada home. So how are they doing when it comes to getting work? Dr. Riza Hasmath studies the labor market, especially in the context of ethnic minorities, a political scientist at the University of Alberta. Doctor, thanks for kicking off the show with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Obviously significant, the addition of, uh, of 25,000 Syrian refugees to Canada's makeup. This at a time that unemployment numbers are rising, up to 7.4% here in Alberta in the month of January. So how are these refugees adjusting according to your observations? Well, it's really too early to actually uh, assess how well they're doing. What we can, however, say is that, generally speaking, they're going to go after jobs that most Canadians aren't. Um, in fact, they're most likely competing for jobs that other immigrants are competing for. So irrespective of our unemployment rate, and I know this is a concern. Um, I mean, I have a similar concern when any migrant population comes in. But generally speaking, from our previous experience and data, um, they're not competing for the same jobs as other, uh, non- as other Canadians are. So in other words, this could be something where, you know, several months ago we were talking about the expiration of several contracts for temporary foreign workers. This might be going back to that story we were discussing months ago? It is potential. Um, I mean, what the data does show is that they tend to go in what we call low-status, low-paying work. Um, so they're going to be doing more manual labor work, generally speaking. Um, so they're not 
competing for the most part with uh, with Canadians insofar as uh, you know where we're seeing job losses. When you study the job market, and we say, and, and we've heard it here from other experts on this show, that uh, you know immigrants or refugees typically are willing to do work that out-of-work Canadians aren't interested in. Uh, I can guarantee you will get feedback from listeners that say, you know, I haven't been able to work in 18 months, and, and I keep being, you know, I'm told I'm overqualified, and I'll do anything right now. Uh, are we saying this too quickly, that Canadians won't do these jobs? Is it a little too soon to say that? I mean, that's very understandable that you might get a reaction like that. But when we look at this, the labor market, we're looking at an aggregate. So we're looking at, um, in terms of not some of the individual's experiences, but an overall. And overall, this is the trend that we see, is that they're generally not going after the jobs that Canadians want. They're generally in low-status, low-paying work. And they're generally, if they are competing with anyone, so with other recent migrants or with other immigrant populations, that's who they're competing with. Hmm. I've got an interesting text message here from Jeremy who says, you know where this conversation about refugees is going to go. 2015 was the year the word refugee became a dirty word. And I can understand where he's going with that. Doctor, have you observed a a change in attitudes from Canadians? Um, I mean, generally speaking, we're a very open society. And we're someone who, and we are a society in which we've been accepting refugees all our entire existence. What I want to say, though, is what I have noticed is that we tend to conflate refugees with immigration. Most of our immigration is not is economic class immigrants. They're those who are coming in, uh, who are readily able to contribute to our society, and particularly their children and their children. Um, so we've, I mean, what I, what I think what 2015 signifies is that there's greater and greater attention on those who are humanitarian refugees and those who are seeking asylum. But again, this, we're talking about less than five percent of the of the immigration to Canada fits that class. It's interesting to hear from some people, and, and you've heard this uh, with regards uh, specifically to the to the nation of Germany, when people talk about how as a population ages, oftentimes immigration uh, in its various shapes and forms is one way to address labor market shortages, uh, etc. Is there some insight there that you can provide that would relate directly to Canada or even more specifically to Alberta? Well, we've been pretty good, both at the provincial level and at the federal level, in identifying labor market shortages, particularly for high-skilled workers, particularly for, uh, um, you know, areas in which we have a, a lack of, uh, of, of resources, human resources. Um, again, that's a separate issue. I mean, that's something I think the public needs to be aware of. The, the Syrians who are coming in, the 25,000 who are coming in, they're coming in under a refugee class. When we're talking about filling gaps and needs in our, in, our, in our labor market, structurally, both high status and low status, the other, most of our migration comes from economic class, and it's a very different scheme, and, and we're extremely very competent, uh, both at the provincial and the federal level, in attracting uh, that sort of talent. Are there specific industries or specific disciplines where we're not as good in either retaining or recruiting talent? Well, I mean, what Canada suffered, um, especially what we might, you know, if, if our trends hold true, what we saw in the 90s and what we might see now is that we suffered a brain drain. So what we had is we had we trained a lot of talented people who went overseas. And that's something that, um, you know, we've been really good at trying to retain that talent, trying to, uh, to, to ensure that they don't go overseas. Uh, so that's one aspect. The other aspect in terms of a sector um, you know, so would be more in terms of nurses, in terms of uh, uh, engineers. Uh, we, 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 
I mean, it depends on the province, it depends on the location, the geography, but there's shortages in some parts and there's surpluses in other. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it, again, it's a very different story than the Syrian um, uh, situation and with the Syrians coming in. It, I can't urge you enough not to conflate it. Don't confuse them. They're very different, separate uh, sort of uh, categories. Hmm. There was there was an interesting uh, situation, I guess I can call it, that, that made news just a short time ago involving the, the governing body uh, with engineers here in the province, the consulting engineers of Alberta, and, and, a, and a relatively new Canadian that had been wanting to work as an engineer but had been uh, raising a bit of a stink with regards to some of the English proficiency and professional proficiency exams that he was being required to complete. Uh, now, ultimately, the governing body ruled in favor of the industry body, the consulting engineers of Alberta, but it, but it raised discussion again around how we uh, certify professionals that have been trained and educated in other countries when they come to Canada. We've talked to healthcare professionals on this show uh, that have said that they, because they were educated in other countries like Egypt, as an example, they haven't been allowed to do what they're qualified to do here in the province of Alberta. Is this a, a, a wide-ranging issue as far as you've been able to observe the professional certification hurdles that many new Canadians are, are encountering? I mean, this is something that's been going on for quite some time uh, in terms of some from Ontario originally, and we've had that similar issue. And the idea here is this. I think it is uh, we should leave it up to the professional associations to decide, you know, what is the relevant standard in the Canadian equivalency. But that being said, and what has changed um, over the last few years is that when we have economic immigrants coming to Canada, they are advised in the most strictest possible sense um, as clear as possible that their qualifications may not be recognized upon entry into Canada, or they might have to go through recertification, or they might have to, uh, you know, do more upscaling. So this is something that has been going on for quite some time. And again, this is an individualized case, but in, in, in general, uh, what we do see is that it should be up to the professional associations to decide what is the relevant standard, because you can't have a one-size-fits-all policy. I was educated in the UK, for instance, and um, you know this, there might be similar sort of uh, uh, qualifications that could be easily transferable to Canada, or there may not be. But it's up to the uh, up to the professional association to really decide on that. University of Alberta political scientist Dr. Riza Hasmath is our guest of the 25,000 Syrians who've now arrived in Canada. Uh, right around half, a little bit more than half of them, will have their costs covered uh, by the Canadian government in their first year. Uh, the rest of these Syrians, uh, new Canadians, are being supported by private groups or a combination of the two. In other words, a private support network as well as government. As far as you're able to tell, or as far as you're able to observe, what will define a scenario that will allow for successful integration for some new Canadians? And what are some of the barriers standing in the way of others that us, pardon the expression, old stock Canadians may not notice or may not be aware of? Okay, so let's disaggregate this question. I guess the first way to answer it is to suggest that you need to take a long-term view about integration. It's not going to happen overnight. And so my, my litmus test, the sort of test we should have, is do their children integrate well economically? Are they getting similar wages? Are they fitting in culturally within our society? 
And I think that's the test we should utilize. I mean, you're right that, you know, there's public funding and private funding towards immediately helping them, you know, integrate into our society. By integration, it's just simple integration in terms of, you know, getting accommodations and, um, you know, learning, you know, Canadian skills and the like. But really, ultimately, we want to ensure that their children and their offspring is going to, you know, fit and contribute into our society. And what the data does show is that, you know, children of immigrants are actually, you know, contributing to our society economically uh, in terms of uh, in terms of transnational linkages, and it's actually improving our economies, increasing our economic sort of output. So there is, you know, positive news to that. Um, so I mean, that's the sort of test one should utilize. Hmm. Did you, uh, I mean, along the lines, I think that you've, you've touched on something there, and, and, and we've briefly discussed it on these airwaves before, the idea that I think many people, and I just base this on, you know, feedback on our text line and, and emails we get and some of the phone calls. I think many people are under the impression that, that this is nothing more than just a grand welfare program, that we're bringing in tens of thousands of people. Meantime, Canadian veterans are being ignored, and there are still homeless on the streets of Edmonton. Uh, homelessness prevails or persists, but we don't often talk about, because maybe it sounds a little bit tacky, but it's a reality, isn't it, that you also, you're also bringing in uh, what will prove to be generations of and again, I said it's tacky, but a new tax base. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are economic I mean, contributors. I mean, it's understandable, again, that people view it in these terms. Um, and, and it's extremely understandable. However, you've got to, as you suggested, you need to see it in the long term. And the long term is that we actually improve our economy. We actually expand our economy by having you know, migrants coming in and their children in particular contributing and their children contributing to our economy increases our tax base, but it also increases trade. Because, I mean, what Canada's comparative advantage is, is that we have all these transnational linkages globally. I mean, in my own, I mean, I grew up in an Italian community in Toronto and their Italian businesses now, you know, exporting back to Italy, utilizing their transnational capital. And that could be equally said for the 180 plus groups in Canada So you're right. We need to look at this long term. But unfortunately, and I think it's part of human nature to only see the immediate um, sort of concern. And and it is, and I can understand it from that perspective. But then again, I urge everyone to look at it in a long term view. Hmm. And sometimes you need the luxury of time. I mean, sometimes a little bit of hindsight is a little more beneficial in truly understanding the impact that, that you know, what, what might be a minor ripple in some people's pond and a bigger wave in others actually means. I mean, this is still very early in the process. Right. And so responsible governments should look long-term. Um, we should look long-term to try and, you know, improve our economy and secure our economy in the long run. And I think, you know, when you do bring in economic migrants in particular, which is the gross majority of migrants coming into Canada, we accomplished that. Hmm. Doctor, before I, before I thank you for your time and, and let you go, get on with the rest of your morning, is there, is there anything we haven't touched on that you think is, is, is worthy of, of consideration, something you can give us to take away and think about the rest of today? I mean, basically, it's, I mean, when we, when we see Syrian migrants coming into Canada, Often, you're right, we, we tend to think, well, we have all these issues in Canada, we have poverty, we have impoverishment, we have unemployment. And I just want to ensure that people realize that, you know, this is a very small segment of our immigration that's coming in. But if we take a long-run view again, that this population is going to contribute more than we contribute back to them. They are going to, you know, contribute back to our economy. And we need to look long-term. 
Dr. Riza Hasmath, a political scientist at the U of A. Really appreciate your time. Well, thank you again. Thanks for hanging out with us this morning. Now, my friends, it's over to you on the text line to 630-630. We'll take your comments. Topher's chiming in. Topher says, oh, I get it. Screw the vets and our grandparents because they aren't contributing to the economy. There wouldn't be any economy if it wasn't for our vets. Disgusting. And I, Topher, I get it. And that's why I wanted to talk to Dr. Hasmath about that. I get why people are saying that. And, and there's, a very, there's a very quick and easy way to get people really worked up and really upset, isn't there? And that is to imply or to insist that either seniors or children are being denied respect or essential services. But that's not necessarily the case. We'll fit in a quick break. And we'll be right back. If you'd rather call than text, the phone lines are open. 780-496-0063. Topher chimed back in, says, I know, Ryan, and I appreciate you touching on it. It's just, you know, 100% of the time, I will always side with our veterans. You know, we owe them more than we even know. And I agree, Topher. And, And most, if not all times, all side with the veterans as well. But what if I were to say to you, uh, you know, we're looking for new funding for for school lunches. You know, there, there, there's kids that, are, that come from situations where their parents aren't even able to send them to school with an, an apple or a bologna sandwich. And we're, we're trying to find funding for that. And then someone with a, a really right-leaning blog started chiming in and saying, you know what that is? That's disrespect for the veterans that, that died on the beaches of Normandy and across Europe. And then you know what that is? We're stealing from the veterans. We're stealing from, from Canada's seniors to provide lunches for these kids. And then all of a sudden, this blogger or this commentator has created a scenario in which you must choose. You must choose between the children and the veterans, or the refugees and the veterans. And it's a lot easier to get you to choose the veterans when certain people, some might call them fear-mongerers or otherwise, will paint pictures of Islamic extremism and suggest that you're no longer safe with these new Canadians arriving. Well, who wouldn't choose the veterans? But the fact of the matter is it makes no sense to compare those two groups. It makes no sense And we've been working on putting some numbers together. And after the 9.30 news, I'll get to those numbers. We're going to tell you, we're going to point out, based on budget lines, how much Canada spends on veterans, the homeless, our First Nations, and then the Syrians. And we'll talk it out. Let's get to Ken. How are you doing this morning, Ken? Not bad. Ken, how do we pronounce where you're from? Wiscotna. Wiscotna? Right on. Good morning, Wiscotna. Wonder where the world would be nowadays if uh, the Canadians and the Americans and the Europeans and others didn't fight for their country. I'd like to know why these Syrians don't want to fight for their country. Oh man, Ken, how do you know they haven't? It's been it's well, been an, it's been an seem, absolute war zone there for three years. With all the what's shown on TV of them running away from Syria, why are they not fighting for their country? Because they're fleeing terrorists. They're fleeing their cities. Have, have you have, what just would Google? Happen, what would happen with the rest of the world if we'd have fleed away from Europe and and uh, uh, and when Germany, Germany was taking over everything? Would you like to tell everybody what would happen? 
So, so you're so. In other words, based on your logic, the young families with children that fled Austria and Poland and Germany uh, with the stars of David on their sleeve were cowards. Is that is that your assertion? Well, now the Syrian seems to be running away from their country. <laughs> Isn't that right? Ken, yes, some families who who have like run dry cleaning shops and restaurants are fleeing their homes being bombed and people being murdered by terrorists. Yes, that is a fact. That's why they're refugees. Didn't, didn't, it, didn't it happen in England and, and France? Well, I return to my previous question. Are those are the families that fled the Nazis? Are they cowards, Ken? You know, the, the stuff in no, England are they? And France was being bombed. Yeah, and, and are the people that fled with their children in tow to save their lives, are they cowards? Are the people that fled the Nazis cowards? I don't think there was much people fleeing at that time. Oh, good Lord, Ken. Canadians Read your hit. Ken, give me a break. Read a textbook. Here's the news. 9.34 on this Tuesday, March 1st morning. 25,000 Syrian refugees have now arrived in Canada. It was a flight into Montreal over the weekend that made that mark a reality. It's a number that the Liberal government had promised to achieve by the end of the year. They then said, well, to do it right, we'll need to delay it a little bit. So uh, there it was. The final month of February, 25,000 Syrian refugees are here. Alberta will resettle between 2,500 and 3,000 of them. As of uh, earlier this month, or earlier last month, I suppose I should now say, early February, uh, more than 1,900 Syrian refugees had arrived in Alberta. Ken had just called in to essentially suggest that the Syrians should be staying and fighting for their country. Uh, Spence chimes in on the text line, says, uh, every war people flee their country. Every single war. So, you know, another uh, listener by the name of TJ says, Germany wasn't bombing Ken's neighborhood, obviously, in, in World War II. Another says, Ken realizes that World War II refugees are here now, correct? But then there's the other side. The listener wants to know, have you ever been to an Islamic country, Ryan? Have you dealt with them ever? Yes. Been to Indonesia. I think that qualifies. And I deal with, if, if by them you mean Muslims, them, I deal with them on a daily basis. Including family Christmases and family reunions and when I go for beers with friends. Another says, I like how you spin this, Jesperson. They're not new Canadians. They're invaders. <laughs> and they're an increased voter base for the Liberals. <laughs> and another says, this is the most left-wing slanted discussion, and it's disgusting. There are some disgusting elements to the conversations we have on this show. I will grant you that. Let's find out what Barry has to say calling in from Boyle this morning. Hi, Barry. Hey, good morning. What's on your mind? Okay, I sort of agree with some of the guys that have called in, like Topher and Ken. Not on everything, but I can understand where they're coming from. Sure. I'm a beef uh, uh, cattle farmer, and I see 25,000 more people eating hamburgers and roast beef, and that's kind of good for us guys. If you're, if you're a Christian, well, then your mission field has just come to you. Wow. Now, <laughs> I don't know if I dare add this or not, but... Uh, somebody brought up, you know, like we're not taking care of our seniors and our and our veterans. Well, see, now the government is coming up with a right to die uh, a solution here, and I believe that one day it's going to evolve into some kind of a population uh, control because our debt is getting so high we won't be able to afford 
these social programs that keep seniors going. Ooh, that that's a that's a big conversation to have there, Barry, isn't it? Anyway, th- thank you for taking my call. Hey, thank you for calling. Are you kidding me? The show is made by calls like this. You sound like a thoughtful guy. All right, take care. Thank you. Thanks, Barry. I appreciate that. Let, let's get into some of the numbers. Uh, Kevin's holding the line, and, and Kevin identifies as an unemployed oil field worker, so I'm certainly interested in hearing his perspective. So, Kevin, hang tight for a second. But here are some numbers, and I'll cite you my sources right off the bat, okay? I'm going to cite you my sources so you can double-check all of this. We've done a little bit of digging. We've put some numbers together because I think comparison-wise, I haven't seen any newspaper put these up side by side by side by side. So the budget for Canadian homelessness we've taken from homelesshub.ca, okay? The budget for Veterans Affairs we've taken from veterans.gc.ca, which is the federal government's website. We're taking the budget for uh, Indigenous or First Nations programs from AADNC. .gc.ca. You can also find that off uh, just Canada.gc.ca, the, the federal government's website. So these are where, where our numbers are from, essentially from government websites, budget lines that are available to any Canadian doing research. So here we are. Every year, and of course it fluctuates, we're talk, we'll talk general numbers here, our government spends $4 billion to fight homelessness. We're talking about Ottawa. $4 billion to fight homelessness. Our government spends about $3.65 billion per year on Veterans Affairs. Every year, our government spends about $8.4 billion on Indigenous Affairs. And our government, over six years, will spend $1.2 billion, so $200 million per annum, on Syrian refugees. Okay? $4 billion a year on homelessness, $3.65 billion a year on Veterans Affairs, $8.4 billion a year on Indigenous Affairs, and $1.2 billion over six years on Syrian refugees. There are about 35 million of us. For the purposes of conversation, assume all 35 million of us are paying tax. Now, I know that your, your nine-year-old's not paying taxes. But this means, for the purposes of conversation, in approximate numbers, individual taxpayers in Canada pay about $115 a year on our homelessness issue, on, on trying to eradicate or address homelessness. $115 a year on homelessness. $104 a year on our veterans. a year on Indigenous Affairs, and $6 a year on refugees. So there are some numbers to consider. Kevin, what's on your mind? Well, where do we begin? It's quite a morning. (laughs) It is. Well, uh, I'm all for helping any refugee fleeing strife and death basically is what they're fleeing and it's up to us to help these people having said that the way the liberals have politicized this is almost criminal in a couple of years from now when all these refugees are here and they're trying to struggle and make their way in canada i really want to see the numbers on the successes and the failures because i'm sure there's going to be a lot of people set up for failure Mm. um Let's help them. We need, we need to help people. That's what ca- uh, Canadians do. Uh, I'm, I used to say I'm a proud Canadian, but what, what happened here in the last little while with our pipelines not getting sent east and south and north and 
you name it, uh, Canada. Canada's broken. We need to fix this country. How, where would, you, where would you start, Kevin? Well, I, you know, I, I have a lot of friends. I, I live in rural, rural country here, and, uh, you know, they, we need to separate and all this stuff. They say this, they say that. No, we don't need to separate. We need to, we need to put the politics aside, policy aside, and just use common sense. And really, Quebec, you're going you're gonna to kibosh the, the hand that feeds you. It's just, it, it makes me sick, absolutely sick to think about what's going on down in their National Assembly right now. It's hmm. awful. I'm an unemployed oil field worker. I have been uh, for a couple of months here. I've been working in the I've been working in the industry for 34 years and uh, met the best people in the world. I've been around the world, and uh, we are just getting vilified and thrown under the bus by our premier. If we had a premier that had any uh, stones, she'd be on the pul- uh, on the on the pulpit right now, hammering her fist down, saying, "Hey, people." You don't want this, you can take our tax money and uh, shove it. It's hmm. just ridiculous. Yeah, Kevin, you know, I mean, I understand. We, and we spoke with, with the Premier uh, just a few days ago, and if you missed it, you can find that interview at 630ched.com. And I, and I asked her, I said, I compared her approval rating to Brad Wall's approval rating, and his is more than double. Last month, his approval rating was about 62%. And I said, do you think it might have something to do with your different approaches to championing the energy industry? Because you know, I probably don't have to tell you, you know what you're talking about, that Brad Wall's been pretty outspoken. Brad Wall seems to, I kind of get the impression that Brad Wall is standing up for the energy industry in Western Canada, not just Saskatchewan. That's the impression that I get. But when I hear news this morning, like what Quebec's trying to pull off, like what you just alluded to, saying that they want their own special provincial environmental report from TransCanada, the National Energy Board's findings won't be enough, and they want this and they want that. I want, and and, and this is the emotional side of me, this is not a political strategist talking, I want a premier that stands up and hammers the podium like you said, and essentially, in in a politically sensitive way, tells Quebec where to go and how to get there. Exactly, and one more thing before I go. We really need Selfie the Clown to do something, too, but it isn't going to happen now, is it? You've lost faith? What's that? You've lost faith in Justin Trudeau pushing that pipeline through? I've never had any faith in the Liberals in my entire life. I'm, I'm, as, I'm as Tory as they get. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd really like to thank Jim Prentice for all his bungles, but uh, he's somewhere else right now, isn't he? Hey, Kevin, you realize the significance of today, March 1st? Do, do you, oh, does I that, do. Yeah. We're going to talk to Graham Thompson uh, just after 10 o'clock. Uh, his take, he's written a great column today. You know, according to the structure of when the election was supposed to be called today, March 1st is the first day, hypothetically speaking, that Jim Prentice could have called an election. I, 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 I often, every morning when I wake up, I look in the mirror and I remember that... Uh, that uh, interview that Prentice did on Chet. Albertan's got to look in the mirror. I just uh, I just shake my head. Yeah. It's just crazy. Hey Kevin, anyway, thanks for the call. Good show. Thanks for thanks for taking my time. Appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks very much and I'd love to see you find work soon. Uh, Bill and John both holding the line. Bill says his parents were immigrants. We'll get to his take on our conversation right after this quick break. On the text line to 630 630 Listener says, uh, this is David, uh, like a previous caller, he says, I I welcome these Syrians, but they need to get off the planes that are sent for them and and not put it off to hang out with friends or family. If it's that bad and you're running for your life, I say they get one chance. If they're not on it, they're SOL. 
Hmm. Another says, uh, by reading these numbers, Ryan, and we ran through some budget numbers, you have to admit that these problems still exist. And I assume he's talking about homelessness or some of the First Nations issues or Veterans Affairs issues. Says perhaps more money is needed to help end homelessness, adding yet another outpouring of money to refugees. Canada is neglecting its own people. Shouldn't we solve our own problems first before solving others? I just don't think that that's how international relations work. I don't think that that's how foreign policy works. Craigster says that oil worker that just called in makes the best point. Canada's missing out on trillions of dollars with no pipelines built. Dan says to Kevin's point, if governments would stop trying to get re-elected the moment they got elected, they could probably actually work out some better policies. Another listener out of Edmonton says it's the fear of religious war here. That's the real issue. Uh, Total fear of a seriously violent belief system. Inquisition time again? I hope not. Fourth Reich? God forbid. Craziness. I wish it would all go away. Let's help humans be human. Bill, what's on your mind? Yeah, I have a little story. My um, my parent, my dad was born in Australia with his family. And uh, I went back to Chilliwack and I was visiting with them in the late 80s. And this was about the same time as the Chinese, the boat people were coming over to Vancouver and that, and everybody was, yeah, yeah, they were all screaming about that. And uh, so anyways, we're sitting around the table, there was my dad, his three sisters, and one of my sister, one of his sisters was dating this Irish fellow. And they were complaining about these immigrants coming over and taking all their jobs and everything. And I said to him, I said, look at you guys, every one of you are an immigrant. You know, it was you guys all came from somewhere else to Canada, and and then they they did the old yeah, but this is different. This is different. So you know what? It it doesn't change. I mean, in the '60s, it was the Vietnamese people, you know, uh, avoiding the war, coming over here, not avoiding war, but running from the war, coming here, and and then it was the boat people in the '80s, and now it's the Syrians. I mean, it's in another 20 years, the Syrians that are coming over here will probably be saying, hey, how come we're letting all of these Somalians come over, <laughs> yeah, and, and sure. vice versa? You know, like it just doesn't end. How quickly so, we forget, Bill. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we're all, they were all immigrants themselves, but hey, we didn't want any more immigrants coming. So. My family, my family's immigrants. We weren't born here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm the first, I'm the first ones here born here. So mm. yeah, it's, uh, it's funny the way that goes though. Thanks for they the call, Bill. To forget. Good. I appreciate it. Uh, Doug, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Ryan. Um, thank you for taking my call. I you just bet. like to put a a little bit of uh, light on something that has not been discussed. And and that's the corporate news media. Uh, myself, I'm a laid-off uh, newspaper pressman of three years now. I'm and, sorry to hear that. Uh, uh, well, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm, you can pick up the pieces and move on. You bet. Uh, but uh, in, in, with my observation, what I've noticed uh, back in 2011, uh, there was rallies, protests, and vigils that were taking place almost weekly uh, for sure, monthly in the city of Edmonton, in Old Strathcona, in Churchill Square, in front of City Hall, by the Syrian community, calling upon Canadians uh, and the government of Canada to to take notice of what was going on with uh, their president Bashir Assad and the killings that were going on with with the Syrian people. Uh, what was happening then was uh, corporate news media did show up with their cameras, but the stories never made it uh, the next day. 
They never made it in the newspapers. They didn't make it on the 6 o'clock news. Hmm. And for seven months, they rallied in protest. And uh, I was there. I watched this happening. And what they were calling upon the Canadian government at the time was they did not want military intervention. They repeated that over and over again. What they needed was food, first aid, uh, heating oil to heat their stoves. Um, one of the one of the things they also asked the Harper government for, but was ignored, was they asked that the Bashir Assad um, government's um, uh, people in Ottawa, their uh, consulate or the, the, the ambassadors, to be sent home, send a message, and to perhaps freeze the assets, the, the assets of uh, Bashir Assad. But this is 2011. It's all hindsight now. And here we are today with a country that's, uh, where its nation is half displaced as refugees around the world. And I wonder if our corporate news media had paid a little more attention back in 2011 when this stuff was going down, if this problem would have existed today. Mm. It's a great point, Doug. I appreciate you making it. Thanks for calling in. You're very welcome. Appreciate you listening. I mean, the, the whole debate about what to do with Bashir al-Assad is, is what stands in the way of some of the superpower nations. And I don't know if I can act. Can you call Russia a superpower right now? You probably can-ish. Uh, but that's what's standing. I mean, that's where they're not going to see eye to eye as an example. I mean, Putin's propping up al-Assad. I'm sure, uh, you know, the United States and Canada's coalition would love to wipe him out. But that's where they disagree. When it comes time to sit down at the table, that's item number one on the agenda. I mean, that, that's why Putin won't even sit down. That's why Russia's so heavily, deeply involved into this. I mean, this is obviously a deep conversation with a lot of levels. But I appreciate Doug making the al-Assad point. We'll fit in the last break of this hour, then John and Ed will be first in line on the phones. We'll get back to the text line, too. It's blowing up. 9.55, Ed's been holding the line. Good morning, Ed. Good morning. What's on your mind? i uh, just... Uh... Uh, the whole thing about this uh, Syrian refugee thing, uh, you know, all of a sudden it's other things become important because of, uh, you know, people's belief system. Yeah, sure, there's radicals in every form of society, but I think this planet needs is an international prick-your-finger day so that everybody stands in front of a mirror, stabs themselves in the hand, and watch what color comes out of your, from underneath your skin. Hmm. We won't bleed the same color, and some people don't get that at all. It's disturbing. Thanks for the call, Ed. Yeah, have a great day. I appreciate that reminder. We've got the news headlines coming up in just about four minutes, but uh, as mentioned, sometimes it's the breaking news station, sometimes it's the conversation station. And Kelsey McGarrick's got some breaking news from council chambers. Yeah, City Council just voted in private uh, to now lift the ban on uh, body rub parlors. Uh, basically, they didn't make a whole deal about it. They they went through the revisions last Monday, and now they're saying, you know, they were trying to find that balance. Are, are we supporting the sex trade by having more or fewer uh, body rub parlors? And they've decided that... Um, as long as they can kind of push more funding and they're going to be looking at that at the beginning of April um, towards inspectors and social workers, they're okay with having more body, body rub parlors in Edmonton. And it is worth noting, Edmonton, again, has more body rub parlors per capita than any other city in Canada. We need to come up with a new name, body rub parlors. It just sounds like... awful. Uh, I'm imagining the old guy. Remember, remember, and I don't mean to make light. I mean, geez, obviously, it's a serious issue, but like body rub parlors. It sounds like the Old West, the guy with like the curled mustache that's trying to rob the train, you know, like the, the b- b- body rub parlor, right? Like, I don't know. It just seems like, but it's good that we're having the conversation, I suppose, because it's it's a polarizing one. You talk to many advocates, they'll say this will this will 
pull workers off the streets, which is a good thing. Well, they say once you limit the number of legally running, uh, you know, operations, body houses as they're called, yeah, you're gonna start. They're gonna start going underground, and that you're actually in, ending up supporting the sex trade that way. So if you keep them above ground, uh, you can have inspectors walking through, social work- workers checking in on the workers there. Then again, now that the moratorium has been lifted on those who would open said body rub parlors. Now you're going to have people saying, not in the strip mall by my house, not in the building over here. And the moratorium was also preventing um, them from moving if the rent was getting jacked up. So this is going to allow them to look at other opportunities so they could be moving into your community now. Oh, now you're just fear-mongering. Absolutely, I am. (laughs) We'll get back to talk on Syrian refugees when we come back to this news break. Graham Thompson, the political affairs columnist with the Edmonton Journal. What if Jim Prentice had waited to call the election? Today's the first day he could have done it without being early. How different would the landscape look? That's where we'll go next.